All right, Abby, I think we have to do this announcement one last time. Um, I feel like doing it in the voice of like Beavis and Butthead or something like that. Would that be okay? Yeah, that's fine. If I'm like, uh, so what is this? It's a exclusive invite. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exclusive. Yeah. You got to be a member. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is coming out Wednesday, tomorrow night. April 8th at 7 p.m. Central Time, because the world revolves around Central Time Zone when you're in strong towns. Um, <laughs> I think that's just because of me. We don't put out times in Eastern. We put them out in Central. And I think they do that in deference to me or because I will screw it up on my calendar. It's Midwest retribution. It's Yeah. We, Midwest will dominate. It's the one thing we dominate in is time zones. Um, <laughs> So for members of Strong Towns, we are doing a late night with Strong Towns. Uh, you can join your fellow members and the team here for an evening of fun, humor, and competition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in this one-hour late night show, you'll get to experience a trivia contest, a behind-the-scenes look at Upzoned. So that's going to be messy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Strong Towns Shark Tank. There will be lots of prizes, plenty of jokes, grab a beer or a mug of tea, or as we have decided, a Mountain Dew and a uh, chocolate milk, and spend the evening with Strong Towns. If you are a member, you should have received an invitation by email. If you did not get yours, contact Alexa at strongtowns.org. Alexa Mendieta, she's amazing. She's on our team, and she will get you your personal invite. And if it's possible you didn't get your invite because you're not actually a member of Strong Towns, Go and sign up to become a member. It's really easy, and it's it's how we pay for this podcast and all the other stuff we do. So thanks to our members, and we'll see you tomorrow night. It'll be lots of fun. See you then, Abby. See you then. I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story in the media each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and I am joined today by our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Once again, welcome back. Happy to see you. Hey, Abby. Happy to see you. We're kind of on a streak now. You haven't had a guest besides me for quite a while. It's been you and I, and it it feels so good, right? I know. It's great. At some point, we'll <laughs> need to bring Daniel on so that you guys can yeah. bait each other, and I'll sit back. I think that's true. <laughs> well, today, we are going to be covering a big story. So we are covering Biden's infrastructure plan. The article specifically we're talking about was published in Politico and written by Michael Grunwald and called Biden's plan is pocked with potholes. I love that title, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Say that five times. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I will not. <laughs> so as many of you might know, the Biden administration this week released an infrastructure plan uh, amounting to $2 trillion that has received quite a bit of criticism from Republican lawmakers. The stated intent of this bill is to rebuild the nation's infrastructure in order to compete on the world stage. 
while Americans might not typically think of infrastructure spending as some of the elements in this plan, basically the the big controversy has to do with some of the elements that are outlined here. So many Americans think of infrastructure as roads and highways, and this plan includes a lot of of elements that are not traditional infrastructure. So it includes scientific research, subsidies for electric vehicles and buses, as well as the infrastructure to support it. It includes support for retrofitting homes and schools for greater energy efficiency, affordable housing, childcare facilities, and community college. So of the $2 trillion, less than half, I think it said $620 billion dollars, we ended up going to actual traditional infrastructure. And even still, the plan takes a very different approach to infrastructure like highways and bridges that we've seen in the past. The plan appears to take a fix-it-first approach and calls for the new expansion of rail lines, airport seaports, and multimodal transportation options in cities. It also includes $20 billion for dismantling highways that have previously been constructed through urban neighborhoods. So another break with tradition is that the spending bill has become incredibly partisan, whereas infrastructure spending in the past has been the ultimate space for bipartisan federal policy. The author writes that the partisan divide around infrastructure may be proof that bipartisanship is mostly dead and that infrastructure has become the ultimate partisan battleground. So from a strong town's perspective, personally, I'm very happy to see a fix-it-first approach being advanced. And as an urban planner, I am especially interested in this idea around freeway removal and that that's going to receive some funding. I know our conversations, Chuck, are typically not very partisan, but you've described yourself as a conservative in the past, and I really want to get your first reaction to this plan. Yeah. Usually when we do these shows, and I don't think people generally know this or it's important that they know, but most of the articles we talk about are ones that you recommend. They're ones that you bring to the table and you know, I'll, I will study them and read them. This is one of the few that I have brought to the table and said, I, I want to talk about this. And I think it's a, maybe important to draw that distinction because this article is very partisan and very political. And I mean, it's in Politico. So like, that's kind of what you would expect, but it's a little outside of, I think what we would normally talk about. And certainly I think if people read this, particularly if they are left of center, they'll probably be triggered by some of the the language in here because it, it is somewhat partisan. I thought it was interesting coming from a conservative standpoint, some of the things that it said and that it, it put forth. And not necessarily because I agree with the author's sentiment, but I, I think some of this is right. He made some points about how the types of infrastructure that Republican voters and Democrat voters are interested in are very, very different. And it's it's so different as to not be called infrastructure by the other. Part of that is reflective of just this self-sorting. We have, as time has gone on and Americans have become more mobile, we have sorted into what social scientists have called lifestyle enclaves. More conservative people tend to live in rural areas. They tend to live in exurban areas. Uh, You see more progressive-minded people living in cities, uh, in urban cores, and uh, in first, you know, closer in suburbs. 
The battlegrounds have tended to be those second ring suburbs and, and on. And you look at this and the things that people in those areas would call infrastructure is, is very different. I know out where I live and amongst you know people who don't live in the city, but live in the surrounding area. My precinct in my uh, neighborhood went like 70% Biden in the last election, 30% Trump. My county where I live went 65% Trump, 35% Biden. So that, that gives you kind of like a breakdown of this rural area that I live in. Most people who live in this rural area believe a number of things that just are not true about infrastructure. First of all, they believe their taxes pay for the roads that they use, which is, is clearly not true. They also believe that uh, the money that they are spending on roads, that we are spending, excuse me, on infrastructure, when we build things like transit systems in Minneapolis and St. Paul, or you know, rail rail systems in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or we we spend money down in the Twin Cities metro area, that that represents a shift, basically a transfer of rural wealth to urban areas. And that's absolutely not true either. I mean, both of those things are very, very false. I think when you go to urban areas, there is a set of beliefs that I think are actually more in touch with reality, but are a lot more difficult for people living in my part of the world to grasp. This idea that you know building more highways is really a bad idea, that building more interchanges and more lanes and more frontage roads is just like a road to ruin. I think that that is becoming a more, if not like common refrain, you know, I think you combine that with the idea that we want to reduce driving, we want to reduce carbon emissions, we want to reduce environmental impacts, we want a, you know, a more just system where people don't have to own a car. To, you, you go through like all the values that, that are kind of being put to the fore in urban areas and it really conflicts with the notion of what transportation should look like from a rural perspective. But it's also financially like more in touch with reality. Like it, it, it crisscrosses reality in some ways. And I, I find that juxtaposition really fascinating because we are at this moment in time where, you know, it seems like the Biden administration wants to make a huge investment in what I think we could call urban infrastructure. Or, or infrastructure to support like an urban lifestyle. And that is going to be resisted at like all levels by people in rural areas. And it's going to be resisted on grounds that I actually think are really destructive for those places. I don't think the infrastructure policies of the past have benefited rural areas at all. In fact, I think they have hurt them even more so than they've hurt urban areas. And that's saying something because they've really hurt urban areas. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I also agree that this plan is clearly more city centric when it comes to infrastructure, like roads, bridges, things of that nature. But what I like about the plan is that only like less than half of the spending is actually going towards what we traditionally think of as infrastructure. And it expands what Americans define as infrastructure, which I think could actually be a positive thing for both urban and rural areas. And I know that there's plenty of criticisms from maybe both sides, but you definitely see them on the Republican side around funding certain programs, yada, yada. But I, I do feel positive about expanding how we're defining this because 
when we are thinking about spending, um, whether it's deficit spending or raising taxes for spending, these big plans, we ultimately want to be putting the funding towards something that is going to be productive. And traditionally, I think we we think about it, we think as infrastructure spending as productive, because if we expand highways, that's going to be you know economically positive for us. And we're kind of at the point now where I think many of us realize that that is not necessarily creating the return on investment in the long run. So expanding See, the I, I struggle with it a little bit. I struggle yeah. with, with, he has this line in this article, you know, talking about everything that falls under the term infrastructure now. It would subsidize electric cars and buses as well as electric, quote, charging infrastructure. While investing in energy efficient upgrades for homes and schools, semiconductor manufacturing, da da da, and then he says, and community college infrastructure, which more is which is more commonly known as community college. <laughs> I was talking to one congressman actually this week, and he he was a kind of defense hawk kind of person, and he says, well, maybe we should just start calling you know all defense spending bills infrastructure too now, if that's like the popular thing. And I, there's a certain absurdity that we're funding like education not through an education bill, but through an infrastructure bill. That being said, we've kind of devolved from a legislative standpoint, from the idea that we would have like shared things we would want to do together, and then we would sit down and work those out. And we would have multiple bills to now having just these very large omnibus bills that include everything we want to do from subsidizing you know, healthcare and home care and pre-kindergarten education and community colleges, we just lump that all in with infrastructure and say, you know, this is an invest investment in our future. I think why I struggle with that most, Abby, is because I actually believe that infrastructure should be an investment that pays a return. Then that return then allows us to do these other things. The way we pay for having community college and pre-kindergarten, you know, money for pre-kindergarten education, if that's what we want to do, is we make really good infrastructure investments that make us really wealthy, and then we can afford those other things. Th this seems like what we've come to is that, no, it's just a free lunch. We just invest in all these other things. We just invest in everything. We don't bother about where the money comes from or what the return is or what it produces. And that's what makes us wealthy. And I, I feel like that's a shell game. Well, I, I think that's a fair criticism. But I do like that we are shifting away from thinking just of roads and bridges and thinking about things like Amtrak or wireless broadband or even rural manufacturing. Like I going through the actual plan, there are things that could help bolster rural areas and small towns, which I do think is important. And, you know, I, I understand when we start to talk about education and things of that nature, it can get kind of muddy to, to try to say that that's infrastructure. Although I think there could be an argument saying that it is infrastructure. I think you could call a lot of things infrastructure. And that's probably where a lot of the, a, a lot of the debate is probably coming from that. A lot of the debate is also coming from how we pay for this. And that's something I wanted you to respond to because from what I have read, it seems that this is not being funded through deficit spending. This is actually going to be funded through a proposed corporate tax increase. And the the argument that's being made here 
by advocates of the plan is that you increase the corporate tax in order to pay for all of this, and then it would pay for itself in 15 years and then ultimately help reduce the deficit. So I wanted to ask you about this because you've brought up in the past that there's a lot of magical math that gets used to bolster infrastructure spending at the federal level, and it can be very deceptive. So you know, I don't expect you to have run the math on this, and I don't even know if the math is published, but I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on these kinds of claims that if we just raise taxes now, we're going to be able to spend all this money and then ultimately lower the deficit over time. Let me make two observations on that. I think it's a really good question. If we go back, the first presidential election I voted in was 1992. It was where George Bush ran against Bill Clinton and Ross Perot was in that election. And so I remember the Clinton presidency very well. If we look back then, it was this debate over how much are we going to cut the deficit and how much are we going to deficit spend? And then how long would that take to, to pay, quote unquote, pay off? And I, I always thought that was a fraud back then too. But the idea was that the payoff would be in four years or five years. And then when you evolve into the George W. Bush administration, we stopped talking about deficits really because now Republicans are in power and Republicans are in power. Deficits don't matter as much. But there was still some talk about it. And, and that term got extended out a little bit. Like we'll be out of a deficit in seven years or eight years. And then you get to the Barack Obama administration and now Republicans really care about deficits again. And we start you know, ha hashing this over. And all of a sudden you get to where, well, it's eight years, it's 10 years. And now with the Biden administration, we're saying, well, we're going to spend all this money today, which is deficit spending because we don't have the money. We, we're we're going to essentially issue bonds and have the Federal Reserve print that money. And, and we're going to monetize the debt and, and, and do it that way. But the theory or, or or kind of the way this has been packaged is that we'll also have these corporate tax increases. So now in 15 years, we will have collected as much money as we're going to spend today. And therefore, this, this balances out. And I find this just to be absurd. A, a lot of the stuff we're building won't last 15 years. You know, a lot of stuff we're investing in that is actual infrastructure is going to need like huge investments of maintenance capital within 15 years. It kind of lets you see that like the next bill will be 20 years or 25 years will extend out whatever modest tax increases we do. There's also the aspect of this, um, what they mean by a payback or paying for this. I've seen you know some of the modern monetary theorists, and I got into a little bit with Stephanie Kelton, who's kind of one of the top people in this, this mindset. She's basically claiming that this is a free lunch you know, the interest rates are so low, we can basically print as much money as we want and borrow as much as we want, spend as much as we want. And there really is going to be no consequences to this. Let's just do it. it. It's a free lunch. We'll create jobs. We'll create growth. We'll get the economy going. Well, why do we pay taxes then? <laughs> That's a really good question. And if, if we're going to be honest with the modern monetary theory approach, they would say we should pay taxes to take liquidity out of the market if we start to experience inflation. And that should focus primarily on corporations and very wealthy. So if the economy starts to heat up and everything's starting to, to go up in price, there's too much money chasing too few goods, you get that money out of the system by raising taxes. 
Today, the theory is if, if there's too much money velocity and it's going up, you, you would raise interest rates and take money out of the economy that way. So it's, it's shifting the, the brakes of deceleration from the Federal Reserve to Congress, which I, you know is a theory. Uh, it's not a theory that I find to be very workable, but it is a theory. But the idea is that we can spend this now and it essentially is a free lunch. There was someone who sent me a meme today, actually. And I'm like, this is really, it's very insightful as some memes are. The meme is just very simple. It says, you wouldn't have to maintain the road. You wouldn't have the cost of maintaining the road. or It wouldn't be difficult to maintain the road if you never built it in the first place. I feel like that is the thing that people in the economists and the policymakers and the people who deal with spreadsheets on this stuff don't grasp is that we're not building infrastructure in the sense that we are doing a one-time transaction. We are building things that will be with us for generations. And so what we are creating is a whole bunch of future obligations for people that they're going to have to maintain and take care of. And it's great that you want to raise taxes too and try to theoretically recoup the amount of money you spent on your left hand from something on your right hand in 15 years. Okay, fine. That, that's a nice theory. But the reality is, is the way infrastructure is supposed to work is that we invest a dollar. That dollar makes us incrementally more wealthy and productive in its investment. And it allows us to repay that dollar, maintain that thing in the future, and gives us more money for pre-childhood education and college funding and all these other things that we want to do. And, and no one, Democrat or Republican, treats infrastructure that way at all. <laughs> it reminds me of when I was a kid and I wanted to adopt a dog, but my parents said, if you adopt a dog, you're going to have to take care of it for a long, long time. So it's a big responsibility. And, <laughs> and I was like, like sure, no, I want no it problem. anyway. Yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> a better analogy would be, that's a really good one, but a better analogy would be that like your parents or your grandparents adopted a dog 50 years ago. And then when you were born, it became your dog to take care of, whether you were allergic to dogs, hated dogs, didn't want a dog, you know, like whatever, it's now your dog forever. And not only that, but you have to actually take care of this dog and give it to your kids and it will outlive you. And yeah. That. Yeah. That's, and, and it will multiply and have other dogs, all of which you have to maintain as well. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I think this is a really interesting discussion just because of how bipartisan or how, how partisan rather infrastructure is becoming now. And I'm kind of wondering if we'll ever be able to get to a point where things cannot be so partisan that the article said something that I thought it stuck with me in a really bad way. <laughs> I want to talk about it too, because you, you didn't like this and I actually thought it was insightful. I was just rolling my eyes um, when I read it, and I understand the author's point. So the the quote is, he says, vibrant cities aren't just full of Democrats. Vibrant cities create Democrats. <laughs> and I understand his point, definitely. But as someone who considers themselves a quote-unquote urbanist or, you know, urban planner, someone who appreciates cities, I just, I can't help but reject the notion that that diversity and walkable urbanism belongs to a political party, especially because there are these are elements that are so 
deeply local to a community and humans have been living in these kinds of environments and cities for thousands of years consisting of people of all different ideological perspectives. So it's a bit frustrating to me when we try to take a particular type of environment, whether it's a small town or a city or a rural area, and try to prescribe a political ideology to that place. Although there are statistics that support that, I think that we kind of undermine that people have all kinds of ideas as individuals and people aren't just to be boxed into these two different groups. I feel that that's a very toxic way of looking at um, humans. It is. I totally agree with you. I've actually found that statement deeply uh, insightful. And I kind of took it in a little bit different direction. It's not so much that Democrats or progressive voters like sidewalks and Republicans don't, or they like (laughs) urban areas and, and Republicans don't. It's fascinating because, you know, I know many, many conservatives who think cities are great and, and love them. It's that the the way our political parties have morphed, Republicans have, and I'll say this as a conservative, as someone who's, you know, struggled over the last, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I was gonna I was <laughs> going back like four years, yeah, eight years, yeah, twelve years, eh, pretty much. Um, has struggled for a long time with Republican politics. There's a certain level of antagonism and disdain that has crept into Republican narratives for anything that would be remotely urban, including like small towns. You know, the idea that uh, we would want to be able to walk from my house to the downtown, which is like six blocks away, and that somehow that would be good for business and good for the neighborhood and good for, you know, the city and good for everybody as being something that you would roundly ridicule as being uppity urbanist, you know, like you're just a, I have people here. I'm generally like a very conservative person. I do a radio show where I am like, quote unquote, the conservative people in my part of the world think I'm this like flaming liberal. Like, what do you mean you want to walk? Like, that's absurd. There's a certain outward hostility that has crept into parts of the Republican party that I think makes having this conversation really difficult. And if you are a young person, I, I look at my kids living in Brainerd. They will someday go to a university in a large city. They will probably wind up getting a job in that city after they graduate from school or a big city. And the idea that they would like be sympathetic to conservative notions, I, I think, is probably likely. But the idea that they would vote Republican is probably very unlikely, given that if the Republican Party isn't able to find a way to talk about urban issues and urban needs and urban things in ways that resonate with people in cities. And right now they're just unable to. I've written for the American conservative that I think this is a huge shortcoming. I think it's something that conservatives need to deal with because there is a real hunger and need for conservative values in cities, if nothing else, to help them work better. You know, I mean, I think... There's a certain yin and yang that that progressive insights and conservative insights have about the workings of the world. And when you have a place dominated by one or the other, everybody kind of loses, in my opinion. Yeah, I know you you like, oh, come on. They vibrant cities create Democrats, but I think they do. 
And I think they do not because of the city or because of urbanism or because, you know, all of a sudden you go to a city and start sipping cappuccino and become all uppity. <laughs> I, I think it's because we just don't have two intellectual versions for how to build a city. We don't have two intellectual versions for how to build a countryside. We have uh, a 1950s version of how to build American infrastructure. And we have an urban version of that and we have a liberal version of that. And I think what we actually need is like a, you know, 21st century version of how to build infrastructure for America. And, and that is neither of those really. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And that is something that I appreciate about the American conservative is that they have a column covering new urbanism. And I think that they're probably the only website on that side that's covering these kinds of issues. And it's a major blind spot. And at the same time, I would say that Republican politics are not the same as conservative philosophy. Um, you could say the same on the left. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot absolutely. of diversity on the whole spectrum. So th the fact that these things have to become partisan is a real shame because I think that we can we, we can start to think about what does a 21st century city, town, rural area look like? And we, we th need to start thinking in more partisan terms if we can manage to do it. It's a shame, but I do think it's a little inevitable. And I think if we recognize why it's inevitable, really that we have this uh, underlying business model that doesn't work for almost all of rural America. And for most of urban America, it doesn't work either. But there's a little bit more vitality there, a little bit more energy, a little bit more um, you know, capacity. If we understand that, I think we can start to come to grips with why it's so partisan and maybe start to untangle that a little bit. Yeah, it'll take time, I'm sure. It will take time. Well, that is all the time we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything we have been reading, anything we've been up to lately. So Chuck, what is on your radar these days? This is We're recording this on Friday, which is Good Friday, which is the end of Lent. And every week during... Uh, this week, every year, excuse me, during this week, I read a book called The Last Week. It's by a guy named John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg wrote this together. And I just, I find it like, it's one of those traditions that I've had for a long time um, that really helps me kind of put this week in perspective and focus on things and, and, and kind of set the rest of the year off on this nice trajectory. In Minnesota, it tends to correspond to the end of winter. And so, you know, we started out this week at 74 degrees here, uh, went to the next day, we had a high of 22. Now today it will be somewhere in the 60 degree range. And, and this weekend is supposed to be very nice too. So it's, it's like we're transitioning from the cold, harsh, dark kind of time to, to this new spring and summer. And it's, it's just, it's an annual tradition to me to sit and reflect on that. And uh, yeah, I thought I would share that in case other people are are interested in the book as well. I love that. And I'm excited for Easter Sunday. I'm going to have breakfast with my sister. So that's pretty exciting. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It should be really nice this weekend. And maybe I'll get some biking in and go to the park. I've seen so many people in the parks this year. It is just 
amazing to see. We had a really tough winter towards the middle of February. So I, I feel like everybody is just trying to get outside these days, which is I, great. I feel like that too. We've we've had just a flood of people who our house is near the Central Park in the middle of Brainerd. And we have a lot of people who walk by our house on the way to the park or back from the park. And yeah, I've seen it too. There's a real hunger. I got my vaccine this week, my first of two shots and uh, kind of feeling really good about that. The fact that I didn't think I would be very emotional. I'm like, I'll just go get it. And, and you know, I've, I have not been affected by the pandemic as much as a lot of people have. So I recognize that, you know, my suffering has been very modest. In fact, I've, there's parts about this that I have felt were a gift for me personally, uh, you know, and so, but getting it, it was a very emotional period of time. It's like, wow, we've kind of come through something. So, yeah, yeah it's been, it's been a crazy year and it has. I'm hoping that we're just nearing the end of it and we can just, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> start to not so, be afraid of each other anymore. So what are you reading? What are you into? <laughs> so I've got a fun one this week. <laughs> so so to preface, I have a couple of, of married friends who have recently become parents. Um, they have an 18-month-old, and I was over at their house last week, and their kid signaled to me that he wanted me to turn their television on. And I was like, okay. And you know, Netflix <laughs> came up, and I'm like going through, and I'm like, what do you want to watch? And he, um, you know, he blabbed something out, uh, not English, something incoherent when we got to the secret life of pets too. And so I turned it on and holy cow, I don't watch animated films very often. This movie was so good. Like the animation is just amazing. You probably are aware of how good I, animation I, has gotten. Yes. I, I was just like staring at it. It's set in New York. So I, the the animation is gorgeous, and I I actually watched half of it <laughs> with this toddler, and then I then I went home and uh, watched the other half. <laughs> oh, by yourself, very nice. Yeah, actually, actually, with my husband, I was like, we gotta watch the rest of this because I was getting into the storyline, and I I didn't wanted to know how it ends. I brought Stella to that movie. She's my young youngest one, and. Um, she loved it. She loved the first one I brought her to. And so we went to the second one. And uh, yeah, it, it, it is amazing. I mean, what they do today with animation is is absolutely incredible. And when you think about, you know, even like the Marvel movies that are like, so much of that background is animation and it looks real. It's, it's, it's amazing. Really astound it is amazing. It's amazing. I, are you one of these people who watches the like here's how we made this film and here's how we did this special effect and all that? <laughs> no, but I did okay. with this movie. I wa I found some stuff on YouTube about how they did the animation and yeah, I I I want to learn more about how they do this because it's so fascinating and I did not realize how good it's gotten. Yeah. See, I don't I hate knowing. I I like the magic. <laughs> I don't want to know how the magician does the tricks. One time I had a behind the scenes tour at Disney World at Magic Kingdom. And one of the things they did is they took us in the Haunted Mansion and they wound up telling us how like these illusions work. And I'm like, oh, I'm so disappointed. I did not want to know how like the ghosts appear. Like I just wanted to have ghosts appear. I don't want to know where the mirrors are and where the tricks are and where the like optical illusions are. Like I don't want to know that stuff. And really? now I know it and I can't unlearn it. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, we are so different in that way. I always <laughs> want to know how how things work, and I can't stand not knowing. So, well, if we go to the Magic Kingdom together, I will show you how the uh, the optical illusions in the Haunted Mansion work. I know. Um, I need to. I do need to go to an amusement park at some point. That's something else I've been wanting to do. Maybe this summer. I don't know if ours will be open. I've never been to the one in Kansas City. I, I grew up going to Six Flags St. Louis, and that was a lot of fun. But I haven't been to an amusement park in, in I don't know, maybe 10 years. I don't. It's been a very long time. Well, here's to doing fun stuff this summer. Yeah, here's to summer of 2021. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chuck. Thanks for talking with me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Happy Easter. Take care, Abby. <laughs>